Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, if you will. We'll continue giving you those uh, words, the two words, let us, that we started. And we had Hebrews 4.1, Hebrews 4.11, 4.14, and 4.16. Now we come to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Then we'll go into the 10th chapter. I think I gave you all a summary of all these in our last lesson. So we'll just take them as we... Uh, approach each uh, reference. And remember we said that there were 13 times in 12 verses that you find uh, the words let us in the book of Hebrews. And each one of them has a particular wonderful lesson about the admonition to let us. We said at the beginning that it seems that God wants wants us to do what he's stated here without being forced to do it. In other words, we have the privilege, we have the invitation, we have the opportunity. And uh, so Paul says here, let us. Oh, some say that Paul didn't write Hebrews, but we'll, that's another, another lesson that we won't get into. I really believe he did, but there's some that debate that. But anyway, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, let us. And in chapter 6, verse 1, let's read it. He says, therefore, so the word therefore connects us with what's just gone before. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of the laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And he says, and this will we do if God permit. And we won't get into the controversial thing beginning in verse 4 on down, which is another subject of controversy in the theological world. But we'll just stick to the point on the word, let us, in verse 1 of chapter 6. So it says, therefore, having the, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Now, what is he speaking of here? You have to connect what we should have read or could have read in chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. So, drop back up to verse 11 of the previous chapter. And he says, Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. What Paul is saying here is that they were not able to understand some of the things yet, that he had many things to say, but he found that they had still acted as children instead of grown-ups. They were not mature in the Scriptures. And the rest of the verses explain that. He says, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. Now, it says the first principles here, and hold your place there, and we'll drop down to verse 1 of chapter 6, and it says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ... So they should have had these first principles by now. Back in verse 12 now, the fifth chapter. The first principles of the oracles of God and are become such, he said these Hebrew Christians, are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. And he said, by now you ought to have been teachers. And now here it is that you have need to be treated like babies or children uh, again, or infants, instead of being grown up and having strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. 
Now look, therefore, chapter 6, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. So what is he saying here? You should have already learned at least your ABCs. And now I come to find out that you have to go back and be taught those things that you should have already been mature in understanding. So he says, let's leave those ABCs now and go on to perfection. Let's get in the fifth grade and the eighth grade and get into junior high and high school and even college. He's saying, let's grow up and be mature in the Word of God. Because they've still uh, acted as if and understood so little about the Scriptures that they were still babes. And he says, you have become such as are in need of milk instead of strong meat. For he's a babe. So, isn't it a terrible thing to find here, as Paul is stating to these Hebrew Christians, people that have been saved for a long time, they, they knew uh, the uh, doctrine of Christ as far as uh, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. They'd been saved. They'd repented of the sins. They were dead in trespass and sins. And uh, he says, in a faith toward God, they'd been taught about faith toward God. And all of these things they should have known. And he says, I have to, we have to go back and, and uh, remind you of those things that you once knew. But he says, don't stop there. Let us go on to perfection. So, leaving these ABCs, let's go on into perfection. He wants them to grow in grace. He wants them to mature. He wants them to mature in knowledge. In Second Peter 3, verse 18, it says, grow. Let me read it for you. 2 Peter 3, verse 18. Uh, let me give it to you. It says, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Peter encourages people to grow in grace. And the fifth chapter of Hebrews, in verse 12, tells us that they needed to grow. They ought to be teachers by now. Look at also in uh, Ephesians 4, verse 14. And notice what it says here. That we henceforth be no more children. Paul is telling the Ephesians. From now on, let's be no more children. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. He's speaking to the Ephesian Christians. Say, by this time, you ought to be grown up enough and not to be tossed to and fro. By every wind of doctrine. By the slight of men whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So... It was a problem that existed. And so we see that what Paul is encouraging here in Hebrews 6 verse 1 is let us go on unto perfection. Let's grow up. Let's become mature. The word perfection actually means of habit or perfection or maturity is what it has reference to. And uh, certainly not only the Hebrew Christians needed this admonition, but Look at how many churches today you have people that have not grown much through the years. Some of them have grown more in two years and others have grown in ten. You know, depending on how they've received the Word and how they've studied the Word and a lot of it how they've been taught the Word too. So all of these three things combined has to do with where they are in their spiritual life. Now, I trust that most of our church family here is is grounded more than many churches are in the Word. I believe they really are. And uh, that's to your credit for studying and reading the Bible and, and listening to it taught and, 
and then uh, and listening to it preached, and then studying it for yourself. The Bible says, "What study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth." When we talk about rightly dividing the word of truth, we understand it to mean to put everything in its proper. Uh, category in place as far as understanding what the scriptures are really saying. You know, uh, someone says, well, the Bible speaks of salvation. Yes, but salvation is more than just a small subject of faith in Christ. It's good to be saved, isn't it? Wonderful thing to know that you, it says, uh, Paul tells Timothy, Second Timothy, I believe it's chapter 1, verse 9, who hath saved us, listen, hath means past tense, doesn't it? And called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. And it goes on, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began and so on. But anyway, what I wanted to say is that that part of salvation, it says, who has saved us. And then Paul says in the book of Romans, now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Well, I thought we were saved when we believed. So he's talking about a future tense of salvation, isn't it? Not the present or not the past. And so there's a present salvation as well. We're being saved right now. So we, we've categorized that and understood it to mean that we're already saved. Our soul is, we're just as saved today, if we've trusted in Jesus as our Savior, as we ever will be. But then we're being saved from the powers of sin. And then we're going to be saved from the presence of sin someday when Christ comes. So just as take every scripture that says salvation or saved and put it in one category to misunderstand what the scripture says. That's why Paul says rightly dividing the word of truth so we can understand what he's talking about when he says now is our salvation nearer than when we believe and we won't be confused and say, well, Paul, I thought you'd already said to Timothy that God has saved us. He has. But now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Because he's talking about the future tense of salvation. And so we need to understand the Scripture by studying the Scripture. And you can only go on into perfection by the studying of the Word of God and by the hearing of the Word of God. Because faith cometh by what? Hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So you have to hear it. And you you hear it for yourself when you read it. You hear it. And sometimes it's good to, to read aloud. And that way you really literally hear it as well as see it in the Scriptures. And so when you read it aloud, sometimes it has a, a, a little additional effect to the understanding of it and to the, uh, and to the power of it, too. I remember one of our professors said that he read the Bible through aloud. Well, uh, you know, that that's commendable, too. And, of course, now we have uh, certain ones that have taken the Scriptures from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, and you can hear it read aloud. In fact, I have on my computer, and I've never seen but one, one uh, CD like this. It's called uh, Heavenly Word Audio Bible. And you just punch up the Scripture, and then you punch play, and it's just like a tape recorder, and it, it reads it to you, and then every time it changes... I mean, it advances in the Scripture. The next verse will come up to fit the screen. And next, right on down, wherever you want to stop it or start it or whatever. It's amazing. So, anyway, I've never seen but one of those. And Daryl brought that to me. And I don't even know where the disc or the CD is itself. I told him if my computer breaks down, he better 
have that uh, downloaded so I don't lose that one. But anyway, there's a lot of good stuff to hear the Word of God, but you, when you read it and study it for yourself, you need to hear it. And it's very wonderful when you do hear it read. In the Old Testament, in fact, uh, you remember they stood, and we studied Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, and they stood from morning till noon and read out of the Word of God. Just read the Scripture. And you know, sometimes reading the passage of Scripture gives you more than what the preacher says. We used to have the responsive readings. We got some in the back of your hymnals as we used to do that and read Scriptures together. Read them aloud. So anyway, they needed to go on to perfection. And that's what we find that is necessary for all of us in order to grow in grace. All right, let's look in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, if you will. And verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's stop right there. So, What we need to do is understand what what it's talking about here. Let's drop back to verse uh, 17. It says, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. That's God's promise. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, now look, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So, we have boldness to draw near. We have boldness to enter into the holiest. That means the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, the holiest. Remember, the Old Testament tabernacle was uh, uh, divided into two compartments. You had the sanctuary out in front. We'll let the first part of this building to this wall be the, the twice as large as what's behind it, because that's really the, the equal parts of it. This front part was two-thirds as large as the back part. This front part was called the, the Holy Place. And the other was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And so, he tells us here, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now then, in the Old Testament, the the priest, the high priest could only enter into, behind the veil, that we'll let this represent a veil, with the blood of the brazen altar, the sacrifice, that was sacrificed out in front of the tabernacle itself in the court, the first piece of furniture in the coming in. And so the, the blood of that sacrifice was brought in by the high priest. Other things were done. There was a brazen labor and there's washings and various things. But he could only come in behind this veil once a year with the blood of that sacrifice for the sins of the people and sprinkle it upon the altar or the mercy seat, we'll call it, uh, that was behind the veil. And He only could enter. The people could not enter. He only could enter. And He only could enter once a year into that place with the blood of that sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the children of Israel on a yearly basis. Now, here, you and I, it says, having therefore, verse 19, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. We go where only the high priest went in the Old Testament, behind the veil, and we enter by the blood of Jesus. Because remember, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent in the midst from the top to the bottom. God opening up the way into His presence, because God's presence was behind that veil. They say the Shekinah glory, a bright, miraculous, glorious light that shined over that gold-covered 
mercy seat. It was called with a cherubim of gold, of one piece of beaten work, the lid and all, out of one piece of gold, formed together with a cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat. Anyway, uh, God rent that veil from the top to the bottom when Christ died, thus opening up a way for every believer to come boldly and enter boldly into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So we go where it was not permitted for the ordinary Israelite to go. We go into the holiest. And we can enter there boldly, not as if we would be rejected or if there was danger, but we can enter in boldly into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You talk about the New Testament bringing you really a long way from what the law for Israel was. I mean, we've come a long ways, haven't we? Because they didn't have this privilege. And they had a representative. The high priest was representative of them. But he was personally responsible and he only could do that. Whereas you and I can go and, and tread where only a chosen few in the Old Testament could go. Only in a much greater way because we go into the holiest of God's presence in heaven because the Old Testament was figures of the tree. True. Look at verse 24 of the ninth chapter. It says, For Christ is not entered into holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So we have a great high priest that's appeared there, and then he bids us to come into his presence in a spiritual way. See that? So he's there, appeared there in the presence of God for us, so we're invited to come to him. And through his blood, we, we have a, the great privilege of entering into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. 10 verse 19. And it says in verse 20, By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. Now then, the veil was there, but that is to say his flesh. By his death, he opened the way behind that veil for us. Because when he died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent in the midst from the top to the bottom. See that? So he's consecrated us. Look at that verse 20 again. By a new and living way. The word new here, this is the only time, though the word new is found in other places, but this is the only time in the New Testament that it means propitiation. It means recently killed or freshly slain. A freshly slain way. So what it says, a new and living way, a way that's ever fresh because of the eternal efficacy of Jesus' blood. So what it's saying there, a new and living way, that it will ever live to be just as fresh and just as virtuous and just as acceptable this day and hour, which is 2,000 years later, as it was the day when God rent the veil in the temple in the midst and Christ shed His blood on the cross, and as a result of His death on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. And it's a new and living way. And it'll always be new. Because that word new there means ever fresh. It means, uh, actually it comes from the Greek, P-H-O-S-P-H-A-T-O-N. Meaning, recently killed or freshly slain. A freshly slain way. And we've already, we'll repeat it again. A way ever fresh because of the eternal efficacy of Jesus' blood. So, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. Can you imagine that a person that was present when Christ died on the cross and they went into that temple or they were at least in the precincts and they 
saw what happened in this miraculous way and that veil rent in the mist and they knew that man couldn't do it, that God had to do this and open up this way that had forever been veiled. Can you imagine the feeling of we've got a way now into the very presence of God. He's rent the veil in the mist from the top to the bottom. And if you remember uh, me teaching the book, The Tabernacle, they say that the veil of the temple later on was uh, in, in the days when the temple replaced the in the same form as the tabernacle, that it was about five inches thick of cloth that was together. And they say that if you would hook two teams of oxen pulling in the opposite direction, tied to the bottom of that veil, they could not rend it. So man's hand didn't rend it. And man's doings didn't rend it. Man had no way to rend, rend this veil. In fact, it wasn't rent from the bottom to the top, was it? And they say it's about 60 feet high in the temple. 60 feet high. So man couldn't reach quite that high, could he? Too high, you can't go over it. Okay. Okay. So it was rent from the top to the bottom, showing that God divinely rent that veil. Am I off my subject? Let's get back here. From the top to the bottom. So we have a new and living way. So let's read on down to verse 22, which is what we want to get at. Let's read from verse 19 through 22 again. And it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, Jesus is in there. We have a high priest, and he's said in the fourth chapter, he's our great high priest, right? We studied that in the fourth chapter. They were not called great high priests in the Old Testament. They were just called a high priest. So here it says, and having a high priest over the house of God. He's told us in the fourth chapter, he's a great high priest. But no, look at this now. Let us draw near with a true heart, draw near to God, draw near into God's presence, draw near through Christ in full assurance of faith. We know that it's been accomplished for us. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, we've been saved, we've been cleansed, God has done something for us inwardly, and our bodies washed with pure water. The water of baptism is symbolized here. We know the washing of the water by the Word is the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, but there's also an indication here that, that those who were saved were baptized, but our bodies washed with pure water. It doesn't mean your sins were washed away when you were baptized. If you remember, Titus says, not by, listen, not, uh, Titus 3, I believe it's verse 5. He says that, that it's not, it's by the washing of water by the Word. Let, let's read that. Uh, Titus 3 and verse 5, right before you get to Hebrews. And I want you to notice what it says here. Titus 3. In verse 5 says this, Not by, by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Washing of regeneration. So, that's being born again. And renewing of the Holy Ghost. So, this washing in Titus speaks of a regeneration, a cleansing that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit when we believe on Christ. The washing of regeneration. Being born again. And renewing of the Holy Ghost. All right, back in Hebrews 10. Let's follow it on down. It says, "Let us draw." Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Now drop back to 
chapter 9, and we'll show you something. Chapter 9, and let's read verses 12 through 14. 12 through 14. It says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, you have chapter 9, Hebrews, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. That's past tense, isn't it? Already obtained it. He's already done it. For if the blood, now look, for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, now that's in the Old Testament, how much more, look at verse 14, that's the key to what we're studying, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience, see, 10.22, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience, 9.12 and 9.14, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see how uh, 9.14, you have it, and 10.22, we're talking about our conscience. How much more shall the blood of Christ purge your conscience? Now then, so we said that in verse 22, we're told, Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. When you draw near to, to God, you can come with full assurance of faith because you know that He's done something inwardly, washing of regeneration. Our hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience. Our bodies are washed with pure water. We're cleansed from our sins by the Holy Spirit. And we are, we've symbolized that in the waters of baptism. But then furthermore, look what's happened. He tells us in verse 23. Now we pick that in 10.23. Because of this, let us... There's another let us... You have Hebrews 10.23. That's the next one. Let us, what does he say? Hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. That's the next one we want to take up. It's the seventh one of these 13. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Don't be double-minded. Do not, you know, uh, James says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Place your faith directly upon Christ. Keep it there. Don't let it move from one side to another. Because why? He is faithful, he, for He is faithful that promised. So we're to not only draw near, verse 22, but we're to hold fast. We've made a profession of our faith in Christ. We've declared it by water baptism. And also, many openly have made confession of their faith before others. And then every time we have assembled together to take the Lord's Supper, we've professed our faith in Christ and in His death and His resurrection. And we're to hold fast because we have a great high priest. And here because He is faithful that promised. And it's without wavering, never doubting the promises of God through Christ, having full assurance of faith. Now you say, well, preacher, I doubt sometimes. Well, we all do. But that's why you've given this... That's why we are given this encouragement, so we will not. That's why the Scripture says, let us hold fast, because He's faithful that promised. We have a profession of faith. We're to express it in sharing God's work. We're also to uh, come to the prayer meetings, to the Wednesday night services, attend the house of God. We're to hold fast to the profession of our faith on our jobs. We're to do it without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. God is faithful. So you and I ought to be faithful at least far enough to hold fast this profession of faith. Now we have time. Let's get the next one, because they're all connected. In, the, in verse 24, And let us, 
Look, verse 24 is the next one. This is the eighth one. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. We'll come back and we'll repeat that again in a minute. But I want you to notice. Let us consider one another. So we're to consider the trials of one another. We're to consider the weaknesses of one another. We're to consider the problems of one another. We're to feel for each other in this respect. The Bible tells us that we're to rejoice with those that rejoice and to weep with those that weep. We're to have sympathy and mercy toward one another. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And Jesus showed compassion on the multitudes because they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. So all of these things are involved in us considering one another. Now notice it says, To provoke unto love. Notice. Notice this. And to good works. We're to provoke. That is, we're to cause others to feel like they need to, to do what we're encouraging them to do. To provoke unto love and to good works. Love to God and love to man. The excitement of stirring them up. Stir up their pure minds. Instead of provoking to strife, we're to provoke unto love and to good works. Again, Jesus said in that Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the what? peacemakers. Peacemakers. Remember when Abraham and Lot separated? Abraham and their, their herdsmen were fighting with one another. And Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between us, for we be brethren. See? If we could get these things that we're teaching tonight involved in the lives of people here in the community and further on out and around the world, a lot of the wars would cease, wouldn't they? And a lot of the trouble would cease. But people will not believe it. And they, the ones that do hear it and know it do not act upon it. James says, From whence cometh wars? Look in the book of James and, and fightings among you. James chapter, let's see, I believe it's chapter 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Where do they come from? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? He says they come from within. They come from within man. Wars. And that means wars and strife on a small scale and a larger scale and a larger scale and the largest you can think of. It starts out with men. It escalates to groups of men. It escalates to, uh, let's say, villages, counties, States, nations, and then nations against nation. You still have the strife, do you not? And what did Jesus say about there will be wars and rumors of wars? And it says nation will fight against nations, but the end is not yet. So, you can see what we're talking about here. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll finish this because I want you to get a connection here of what we're saying. Hebrews 10, verse 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Notice the end of that statement right there. Notice the punctuation there. What does it say? It continues on, doesn't it? Verse 25 is vitally connected with verse 24. Notice carefully. Let's read verse 24 and see what it's saying, and then we'll read verse 25. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. You have, uh, in my Bible, a colon. Okay, not a period, not the end of the continuation of the statement that he's making. 
And then he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. If you're going to provoke one another to love and to good works, what do you have to do? Be there. Assemble together, right? And look, and it says, as the manner of some is. You know they had the problem of people not attending the services way back there in those days, same as we do today. There were those that were slack. And he says, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, what does he say here? He says, if you're going to provoke one another to love and good works, as he said in verse 24, we'll not be for... We'll certainly not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But exhorting one another. How are you going to exhort one another if you don't fellowship with one another, if you're not assembled together? That's why Jesus established the local church in the first place. That they could what? Not only preach the gospel and go out in the communities and in states and nations and, uh, and missionary work around the world, but that they could exhort one another in the local assembly. And I disagree with this. Uh, I've heard it from two or three sources over the television once, and I've heard it other other places, that God didn't make the church a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. But God puts a great deal of emphasis upon the church being His place. It's the church of the living God. And there is some emphasis upon it being not a museum, of course, but on the other hand, he puts the importance upon the assembly of his people together. So don't ever belittle that part of it. Now, you may emphasize the other part, that we are certainly to to, uh, witness to lost souls, and we sing the song, bringing in the sheaves and sowing in the morning and so on, which is is a work of the church. But a work of the church is also a, a fellowship of God's people being exhorted in the things of God, which some people have neglected because they go strictly the evangelical aspect of it without regarding that the church is to be fed. And you read in Acts chapter 20, let me show you what Paul said in the 20th chapter to the Ephesian elders. Turn to Acts chapter 20, if you will. Now look, what does he say in verse 26? We could read a whole passage here. Well, let's just start with verse 20. Verse 20. Now, verse 17, he called the Ephesian elders together. But look at verse 20. Let's start there and go down through 28 at least. Now look. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says, this is what I did in in winning, what? Winning the Jews and the Greeks. So this was the evangelical part of Paul's ministry. Now follow it on down. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, uh, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, now look, verse 26 on down. Wherefore, I take you to record this day, that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Paul says, I taught you all the word of God. 
all that he was able to do in that particular time. And he says in verse 28, Take heed therefore, and he's, a, he's charging the Ephesian elders. Now look. <laughs> Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed what the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. This flock, to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God. That means to feed them upon the Word. That means to guide them, to lead them, to... To pastor them. And he says that this is your charge. To feed the church of God which he had purchased with his own blood. And then he goes on to tell what will happen after his departing. This flock, this church of the Lord was purchased by his own blood. And it was a particular assembly. It was the church of Ephesus. Because he had called the church. Look at verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Verse 17. So he's addressing the elders of the church. And he said, this is your responsibility to feed the church of God, which he had purchased with his own blood. So I believe there's a great deal of importance attached to feeding and leading and guiding the local church. And it's our responsibility as preachers to do that. And then it's, certainly it's our responsibilities to witness to lost people. It's our responsibility to encourage our people and exhort them to go out and bring the lost into the house of God where they can hear the word preached or to witness to them personally and win them to the Lord. But whatever it is, it all centers upon what? The church of the living God. And he says, which is the church of the living God? He tells Timothy. He says it's the pillar and the ground of the truth. And if you have the church standing where it should stand, then the ministries of the church will be what they ought to be. So we, got to, we have to ground the people in, in God's Word. Let me read that scripture in Timothy, and then we'll close and we'll pick up where we left off. But I want you to listen. In the 1 Timothy chapter 3, I believe it is, in verse uh, uh, 16. Well, verse 15 and 16. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15 and 16. He says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. See that? Which is the church of the living God. Jesus said, We're two or three gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst of them. Which is the church of the living God. What does he say about it? The pillar and ground of the truth. He's not talking about a universal church. He's talking about a local congregation. He says, this is how I want you to do, because the church of the living God is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's Christ's incarnation. Justified in the Spirit. He was done that in in uh, the temptation, and he was justified in the Spirit in many ways, seen of angels there and at other times, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and what? Received up into glory. Those two verses are very important. Well, we didn't get through, did we? So, we'll get another go at it. So, we got to Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25. Right? So we'll get into Hebrews chapter 12 in our next lesson, the Lord willing.